Cinephile. Nicholas Cage. Very sincere group of film enthusiasts who are proudly cinephiles. Oh my goodness! Warren Beatty apparently read the wrong name. This is incredible. Moonlight won Best Picture. Cinephile. Ethan Hawke. It's kind of like I'm a professional actor and I direct for love. There's so much in this world that's dividing us, and music is one of those great tools that brings us together. All right. There's baseball and World War II. It's kind of <laughs> a dream. Cinephile, the Adnan Verk movie podcast. All right, yes. Why wasn't I still recording? That would have been gold. Going to run that as the, the open. open. Confusing? Not a bit. Writer-director Bart Layton employs all the tricks in the docufiction playbook to create a uniquely tricky heist flick, and he makes sure the audience can keep up. That's from Bob Mondello, NPR's All Things Considered, a review of American animals in theaters. One of the films I'll be reviewing, and one of the films I saw at the Greenwich International Film Festival. Welcome, as always, to Cinephile. Two years are in the books. Thanks so much to everybody for your support along the way. Thanks so much to... Allison Turner of the Dan Levitard Show, because she got us Paul Schrader. I meant to give her a shout-out. I forgot to. So thanks to Allison who got us Schrader. And speaking of Schrader, his film with Ethan Hawke, which you may have heard, first performed. I've talked about it extensively. We had Schrader on the podcast. It's now going into more and more theaters, and I believe June 22nd, it'll go into a wider release. Ethan Hawke was on Colbert Monday night. He told this great story, which I, I wanted to relay. So he's talking about Mark Rylance, and he says, you know, everyone knows who Mark Rylance is now because he's in the Spielberg movies. But Ethan Hawke said years ago, nobody knew who he was. And I went over to England because they were doing part of the Shakespeare Festival. And Mark Rollins is directing. He's run this theater, this beautiful theater in London for years. And he goes, okay, Vanessa Redgrave is going to do this speech as Desdemona. He's like, uh, Paul Schofield, you're going to do the speech from Lear. And Ethan Hawke in the middle, you're going to do Hamlet, to be or not to be. And I'm like, uh, no. He goes, so afterwards, I go backstage to Rollins. I go, are you kidding? He's like, what? I go, you're putting me between Vanessa Redgrave and Paul Schofield, like two of the greatest actors of all time. And I'm Ethan Hawke. Like, what are we doing? He goes, why can't you do it? And he goes, well, I mean, think about it. Like, they're two living legends. Like, I'm, you know, I'm whatever. And he goes, why? Because you're American? He goes, no, I've done Hamlet before. You know, he's, okay, so you're not an actor. You've done 50 movies. Goes, no, I, yeah, I can. He goes, so, so why can't you do it? Like, who else should do it if not you? He thought, all right, fair enough. He goes, now, here's the one bit of advice I have for you. He goes, what's the first line of the to be or not to be speech? And Ethan Hawke stares at him and says, to be or not to be. He goes, no. He goes, the first line is actually, and now I am alone. He goes, so when you do the speech, say, and now I am alone, and then just stare at the audience. You can move around where you're looking, but just stare and don't say another word, and they'll start laughing. And Ethan Hawke said, why are they going to start laughing? Ron says, I don't know, but I've done Hamlet like 700 times. Every time that I do it, I pause, they start laughing, and then you say, to be or not to be. And all of a sudden, they go, oh, no, we missed the money line. And he goes, and then they're hooked. Then they are riveted the rest of that speech. So sure enough, Vanessa Redgrave does her thing. Ethan Hawke goes out. Now I'm alone. Stares an interminably long amount of time. Starts hearing laughter, giggles, and then just spits it out. To be or not to be, that is the question. And then the audience was transfixed because they go, oh my God, I missed the money line. Here we go. So he said, I do this speech. It's great. Paul Schofield after tell me he did a great job. And he goes, the point of the story is this. Everyone always thinks, hey, how come I can't be Mark Rylance? Like, who's this guy showing up in the BFG and these Spielberg movies? But the point is, everybody paid their dues. That guy did Hamlet 700 times. He worked in theater for 35 years of obscurity, and then he wins an Oscar for Bridge of Spies, and you think it's a star overnight. That was a very cool story about just paying your dues. Now, a guy like Ethan Hawke always is paying it forward. Once again, the film is called First Reformed. It's coming to more theaters June 22nd. Uh, we're going to talk about, like I said, American Animals, also the new season of Arrested Development, my stories from the Grand International Film Festival, Ben Lyons, 
chiming in with the Lions Den. We've now hit our sweet spot in the Lions Den. We're looking for weird and eccentric, and Ben has stories along the way. Dan Stanzik is nodding with this story. It does fall into that category, plus Dan's Everyman and Rick Passmore's In Defense Of. Another thought here, a movie I was scrolling the other day. I haven't seen it in a long time. Donnie Brasco, so good. And this is the thing about Pacino. It's one of the rare, tragic comic performances. I know that's one of those words you hear and you say it sounds pretentious, but it really is. He's tragic, and then he's really funny in the movie. And I picked it up the last 30 minutes to go. Remember the scene where he's confronting Depp? They're just outside the boat, and he shows him the picture of the Stugats, and he just goes, if you're a rat. When he puts the gun to his head, he almost looks like a clown, the way his face is. He just scrunched up his face. He goes, if you're a rat, then I'm the biggest mutt in the history of the mafia. Depp convinces him that it's not him. And then, you know, they've got the scenes earlier where he's just, like I said, he's clownish. Even the first scene where he steps to Depp, so to speak, and he goes, Fugazi? Or Johnny Depp's telling me it's a fake. And he goes, you call this a Fugazi? And then <laughs> the way he shrugs his shoulders, he goes, you ask anybody, anybody about Lefty from Mulberry Street. Forget about it. <laughs> it's so good because he's like almost a wannabe tough guy. Like, he's not the Don. He's a low-level mafioso who the other guys, Michael Madsen, Sonny Black, and Roy Kirby, they make fun of Lefty. You know, he's like an old has-been. He's like that car salesman that's so well past his prime. Like, oh, we just keep Jimmy here because he's got good stories, et cetera. So Lefty thinks he's big time, but he isn't. And Depp realizes that he isn't, but he treats him with such respect and reverence that naturally Lefty welcomes him to the family and it preaches because this guy treats him the right way. Later on, he's making the, the cooking, a pinch of salt, punch of salt, pinch of punch. I can never remember but what I want to talk about specifically the movie is it's one of the most tender scenes of Pacino's career is where he knows he's going to get killed. After the FBI agents come and show them the fact that Johnny Depp is indeed Donnie Brasco, an FBI agent, and they all know, well, yeah, I mean, if you vouch for him, Lefty, like, of course it can't be. He knows he's dead. So he's watching the animals fighting, which he always likes watching at home. And then he tells, he gets a phone call, he gets sent for, and he's going to go. And the way that he plays that scene is so good. Like for a guy who gets criticized for overacting and people say there's two Pacinos, there's pre-scent of a woman, there's post-scent of a woman where he just yells all the time. Go and watch that scene where he knows he's going to die in Donnie Brass, which came out in 1997, five years after. It's really become an overlooked movie because it came out in March. So it didn't get an Oscar. You know, he was not nominated for Best Actor. But if you ask Pacino Files like myself, it's, it's one of his best performances. And the way he handles that scene, and he says to Annette, he goes, hey, tell Donnie if it had to be anybody. I'm glad it was him. So tender. Takes the chain off, leaves the wall open, goes out, takes a minute. He's done. So good. Donnie Brasco. Another movie I watched again. Go ahead, Danny. Chime in. Yeah, just real quick. You said that's one of Pacino's best performances of all time. We never did Pacino back when we did the actor showcase. I'm going to put you on the spot right now because I don't think it's in your Pacino top five. And you just casually dropped it in there like it's one of his best performances. There is no chance you put this in the top five. Not top five, top ten. Oh, okay. Godfather, Dog Day Afternoon, Serpico, Scarface, Glengarry, Glen Ross. There's the five. But Donnie Brasco at six. Okay. Right? <laughs> Put me on the spot. I love it. Uh, another way, listen, and Allison's been trying for a while to get Stanley Tucci. If we get Stanley Tucci, I mean, I don't know what I'm going to do it myself, but I watched Big Night again, which is one of the great films of the 90s. That I'm throwing out there. I love that movie so much. If you haven't seen it before, I think it's one of the best movies ever about brothers and siblings and the relationships between all of them. It's so nuanced. It's so charming. Normally, you punch a guy in the face if you call the movie delightful, but honestly, Big Night is utterly delightful in every respect. And speaking of shots, there's the last shot. Tucci co-directed it, and you talk about camera work that's so busy and so frenetic. It's a static last shot of a couple of brothers making eggs, and it's a scene of reconciliation. It's so beautiful. I get choked up every time I see it. I love it. If you've ever seen Big Night, you should go definitely check it out. 
And one day we're going to get Tucci, I promise you. Greenwich International Film Festival. So this is how it went down. These guys were so smart. Gabe Fazio, who's an actor, and Michael Cantor, who's a film distributor. He's also a Tony uh, Award member. So he's got to like watch all of them. So I was like, oh, I can tell me about Dear Evan Hansen. How do I get tickets for that? And he's like, let me tell you something. Some of those shows are unbelievable. Some of them are tough. But anyways, we're all there together. And it was really smart. We watched eight movies, all right, all, all in separate times. So now for the jury deliberation, Gabe was smart. He goes, all right, let's go through each movie and just say thumbs up or thumbs down. I go, really? Cisco Ebert style. He's like, yeah, because we'll know if three of them are up, then we're having to discuss it. And if it's three down, we can dismiss it. I'm like, great, works for me. And I said, before we get going, guys, of the eight movies, I'll be honest, two I thought were outstanding, three were fine, three were dreadful. And Gabe goes, I had the same ratio. I'm like, okay, I hope it's the same two, three, and three. It's go time now. So we go through the first one, all three thumbs down. Great, we can dismiss it. Go through the next one, all three thumbs up. How up were they? I'm like, well, I liked it a lot. You liked it a lot? Okay, good. Well, we're going to discuss that one. We're, we already have it ranked, et cetera. Thankfully, of the three that I thought were dreadful, two they also agreed were dreadful. The one that I wasn't crazy about, they both kind of liked it. I'm like, all right, well, good luck swaying me. And thankfully, they weren't that enthusiastic about it. So through that very rudimentary process, we immediately rooted out five movies. I'm like, that's amazing. So now all I'm going to do is worry about three movies. And of the three, uh, one of them I really liked, they weren't as strong. And hopefully it gets a distributor. It's called The California No. And Ricky and Dan would love it. I thought it was a great comedy. It's about this guy whose wife is a cuckold and he's going through the separation. And, and every film festival needs a good comedy. You don't have enough comedies these festivals. And I thought it was really well done. They They thought it was a little bit... Uh, to sitcom, you're not as funny as I did, or maybe it's just our sense of humor. Uh, but I really like the California. No, I hope it gets a distribution at some point. The two movies you really liked. One was called We the Animals, which I'm going to engage a bit of hyperbole. At its at its height, it reminds me of City of God. It's like a coming of age story about this young family, a Hispanic family, and the father and the mother. And I mean, it's listen. The beats have been played before. When it's done so beautifully, though, uh, it can always be rewarding. And I thought it was a very enriching story and optimism about this family coming together. It really is a boys coming of age story. The other one that ended up being the winner, find this dumb little bitch and throw her in the river, which I tweeted the other day. My brother goes, that sounds vaguely misogynistic. I'm like, no, it's, it's not what you think. But both those guys were at guns blazing. This is the best way. And I'm like, I thought it was very good. I, I preferred We the Animals because I thought it had that feel to it. Like I said, City of God, George Washington by David Gordon Green. You know, and and they said, well, listen, that movie's good, but that's more optimistic. This movie's the way reality is. And then Gabe started to get fired up. He's like, no, this, you're right. We the Animals is an excellent movie because that was my number two. And he goes, and that's a really soulful movie, but this is about what life is really all about. So this is what the movie's all about. It's a Polish family living in Germany, and they're taking care of these animals, and that's what the, the father is. He's, he's I want to say he's selling a pet store, but he's, he's taking care of animals, maybe selling them contraband, et cetera. The title of the movie comes to the fact that when the animals need to be euthanized, the little girl in the movie, who is maybe 12, 13, takes the puppies and throws them in the river. So the bitch is a female dog. No. So the the brother, I mean, I guess brothers do this kind of stuff, just figures he's being funny, records it and throws it up on YouTube. And he's just, I, I don't know what his motivation is for. Maybe, I guess it is just something when you're 14, like, oh, whatever, I mean, my sister's throwing dogs in the I think you know what it is. Sorry, earlier in the film, he sees other videos on YouTube getting a lot of plays. He goes, hey, I want to, I want to be popular. I want to have a footy that's got bloated. I'll get three million views. That's what it is. So he throws his sister up there and sure enough, he starts getting a lot of views. Hey, look at that, blah, blah, blah. But then one of the comments posted says, find this dumb little bitch and throw her in the river. And all these people are furious saying, who's this person throwing these dogs away? Not knowing the dogs were sick and she was throwing them away because, you know, 
It's a little cruel and inhumane, but that's how they do it over there, so to speak. So that's where the teleconference, and it becomes this mob mentality because she's also a budding American Idol type star, and she just got accepted to go on television, and people, even though her face is obscured, can put together that it's her. So the conclusion, literally, mob mentality, a mob descends upon her, and she starts yelling, oh, but the puppies are sick, you don't understand. And let's just say it's a very bleak and dark ending. And I said to those guys, I'm like, if this movie wins, I mean, it's excellent, it's gritty, and it's intense, but I mean, this is... This is tough viewing. And part of that, Michael said this. He goes, sometimes when you watch these movies, do you think this is going to play? One of the movies was American Animals, which just got released this weekend. So I said, I don't know. Should we be discounting American Animals? Because it's already got a distributor. So are we supposed to help that little indie film or little foreign film that no one's going to see? And because it won the top prize at Greenwich International Film Festival, now it's distribution? Or are we just ranking the best movie? And if American Animals is the best movie and one of the stars is a kid from Dunkirk and I recognize him and that shouldn't be penalized for it, then I don't know how we do it. And so, so let's do the criteria of this. Storytelling. What's the best film that tells a story? And those two were able to convince me that, you know what, that had the strongest story and through line. And to be quite honest, they were so strongly passionate about it. I had to go pick the kids up. I'm like, I'm not going to do 12 Angry Men here. All right. If you guys want the movie to win, I'm not going to, I am, I am easily swayed. If ever I'm on a jury, Dan Stanzik's been on a jury before. Let me make this clear. I will be easily swayed. I do not want to deliberate for a long time. Can we get the check? I'm in Greenwich. It's an hour and a half. I got to fight traffic. 95 is a mess. I'm like, fine. Whatever you guys want. The bitch wins. So the bitch is back. That is the winner. Throw this, to find this dumb little bitch and throw in the river. Perhaps coming soon. But if you ever get the chance to be a part of a jury festival, it is very cool just to do it. Uh, but I will say it's more time-consuming than you realize. I mean, eight movies, hour and a half a piece, that's 12 hours of my life. And when the movie is dreadful, like so, and, and thankfully the two that we were mocking, Madeline's Madeline was one of them, were like, dude, it's so preposterous. And I said, did you guys watch the whole thing? Like, let's be honest. They go, yeah, you have to. And you feel compelled to because some filmmaker, like a Rick Passmore, poured his heart and soul into this thing or her soul and you say, I owe it to them to watch. Even if it's awful, I can say it. Because what if I met the filmmaker and they said, oh, well, trust me, which is the ending. And I'm like, I don't think it could redeem the rest of the film. And quite frankly, I didn't see it. Well, what do you mean? You're a jury member. that Take your job seriously. This job was just pro bono, like much of my life right now. And I'm like, no, I don't, I don't want to get through this thing. So I got through it. And if ever I meet the filmmaker who did Madeline's Madeline, I can say, congratulations. I'll make the... Barbara's this other French film was dreadful. If ever I meet the filmmakers, I don't know what you were thinking, but it was, yeah, I was yawning. It was yawn-inducing. There's no question about that. American Animals, though, is in theaters. It's one of the films all three of us did like it. We all give it thumbs up. We had it ranked third of the eight films, and I encourage you to go check it out. It's definitely a different movie and a, and a fun movie. Before I do that, though, I do want to mention uh, our, our winners from the trivia. So last time, the two-year anniversary of Cinephile, shout-outs to the following who got the quiz right. We wanted to get the first five winners right. Scott Niemi, Justin Viola, clearly related to Frank Sweet Music Viola, Kristen Flynn, Joe Sharonbrock, and Kyle Pop. Passport, you were tracking the winners. How soon after you posted it, or Dan had given it to us, that we were able to get five correct winners? Uh, well, we got the first three, like, almost instantaneous. Like, in the first 12 hours, like, boom, wow. they were there. Uh, then the last two kind of came in like a day or two after people like catching up, listening, weren't doing it right away. Right. Had a lot of close, had a lot of very close people. Yeah. Had a lot of people like kind of come back and reiterate. Tripped like, oh, them no, up wait, on wait. the uh, two time appearances. I saw a couple of those mistakes being made. So they were like, Oh, wait, wait, no, it's this one. But y y your first, your first tweets, your solid tweet. Like, nice. so it's got to be, it's got to be definitive. But yeah, they were, they were good though. I mean, they got in there and like the, the first three, like boom, boom, boom. Like they would, they listened as soon as it dropped and got in there and did, and either did the research or already knew it offhand because they're true cinephile cinephiles. Ooh. So, uh, 
yeah, like it was it was a good one. So the best way to describe our audience is it's niche, but it's strong and it's loyal. <laughs> it's a small following, but they hang with us. All right, American Animals. This is what the story is all about. If you like a heist movie, you'll love it. Spencer Reinhardt, Warren Lipka, Eric Borsuk, and Chas Allen, four friends who live an ordinary existence in Kentucky. After a visit to Transylvania University, Lipka comes up with the idea to steal the rarest and most valuable books from the school's library. As one of the most audacious art heists in U.S. history starts to unfold, the men question whether their attempts to inject excitement and purpose into their lives are simply misguided attempts at achieving the American dream. Bart Layton is the filmmaker, uh, and really the category is docufiction. Because he's not only telling the story of these four guys doing it, he then shows the subjects today telling the story of what happened piece by piece. So you've got this real sense of um, life imitating art because you've got actors playing it. But then you see the real guy saying, well, that's not exactly how he said it. Or, no, Jimmy actually said this. And this is where the story went along. So it's really smart to be able to use documentary style, the actual guys who pulled up the heist, along with actors in the fictional recreation of this movie. Um, it definitely owes a debt of gratitude, big time to Quentin Tarantino. While watching, I clearly said Bart Layton has watched Reservoir Dogs more than a few times. Uh, maybe some in shades in some ways of Dog Day Afternoon, what Sidney Lumet did there. Uh, but I thought it was a fun movie, and I thought it was engrossing, and ultimately it showed uh, what the price was for these guys. I mean, here's the key. Oftentimes in a heist film, I mean, not oftentimes, but you feel like these people are underprivileged, they're desperate, they're driven by certain circumstances. These guys are all rich. They're all rich kids. They're all spoiled. Their parents are all rich. They're going to university. They, they just do it because they go, how easy is this? You get a librarian, stick a gun in her head. She's going to be terrified, pee her pants, which she does. Steal a bunch of art books, like kind of heavy, whatever, and then we'll sell them. Like, this is about as easy as it gets. And that's what I guess oftentimes happens for criminals. It's just the ease of it. I can just do one night's work and I can get $9 million. Okay, I'm willing to do that. that that's something that I'm willing to do. Um, and I thought it was really well done by Bart Layton, the way he's able to tell the story. I'm giving it three Maple Leafs. I think, like I said, if you like heist films and docufiction, it's particularly well done. Uh, Pastor, do you have a chance to see it? I saw you were nodding as I was saying it. Not yet, but it is on my radar. It It is actually just come to a point. Uh, this is the first film, I believe, that uh, MoviePass Ventures uh, picked up out of uh, one of the early festivals and is uh, distributing it. So when people ask about, well, how can MoviePass survive on the $10 a month on you know movie a day deal well this is it they're they're going to do other things around it that are going to help support their main venture of allowing people subscription based movie watching they're oh, going to wow. buy films distribute them they're going to sell ads they, i mean they're they've got a lot of things going on for it so when people ask about what what the deal with movie pass is well american animals is going to be one of those uh, answers that's great to know because i was just reading in variety they were saying that they, they've lost a lot of money movie pass right out of the gate there's no question but they know oh, they're, they're bleeding gonna... they're bleeding right. liquid right now like it's crazy. tens of millions of dollars i'm like oh my god how can this be sustainable but, but so was amazon when they first started right amazon was just constantly in the red and now look at them right Two steps back to take uh, 20 steps forward in this case. American Animals, Three Maple Leafs. My only quibble of the film, they show the uh, guys who did the crime, but they only fleetingly show their parents. I would have loved to see more from the parents present day. What was your reaction to your kids doing this? What did you do when you found out? You got kids who are rich and privileged going to prison. I mean, how did you deal with the fallout of that? I would have liked more exploration towards the parents, but it's a relatively minor quibble. American Animals, check it out in theaters, especially if you've got movie pass. And lastly, before we get to our special guest... Arrested Development. So I, I'm not going to spoil it because I don't think Dan Stanzik has seen the eight episodes yet. Passmore hasn't. And I know people are not uh, crazy like me and watch it right away. Memor the day after Memorial Day is when it was released. So eight episodes. And I'd love to be able to binge watch because I don't watch much TV. I know everyone loves binge watching. It's definitely fun. You watch the episode five seconds later. Here's another one. Why not? Here's the good news. 
it's a significant improvement over season four, which was widely acknowledged to be a big disappointment. And even though I was resistant to that theory at first, because I was just so happy to see the Blues together again, with retrospect of five years, with hindsight, it clearly was a disappointment. If you ask me to watch Rest Development, season one is one of the greatest seasons of all time. Season two is still really funny. Season three is good. Season four was disappointing, and I have no reason to go revisit it. Although, I like what Mitch Hurwitz did on Netflix. He recut them. One of the biggest criticisms of it, yeah, there's two major issues. One was they weren't together enough, which was the shooting schedule. So Job had his own episode. Buster had his own episode. The whole point of the show is they have amazing chemistry together. But the other point, as Dan just did with the body language, is they're too long. You know, there's a reason why sitcoms are 22 minutes. There's a reason why you have an A plot and a B plot and a C and, and everything ties together. The, you know, the, the Norman Lear theory works. In the case of Netflix, and I get what Herbert was doing, they just do whatever you want. Okay, episodes 35 minutes or 38 minutes. But comedy, when it's stretched out like that, doesn't nearly work as well. And thankfully, these episodes are about 24, 25, 26 minutes. So I think that was smart of him to go, you know what, less is more. And the way he recut season four, I believe on Netflix, is into like 22-minute style episodes. So he trimmed the fat, so to speak, and made it a little bit tighter. Didn't have the time, obviously, to go back and watch season four again. But here's the bottom line. It's good, but it's not great. It definitely redeems season four. It's wonderful to have the cast back together. It's awfully timely. There's Listen, Arrested Development was ahead of the curve, okay? They called building a wall before President Trump ever called for it. So they obviously referenced the fact that they were prescient in doing that. Uh, There's Cinco de Cuatro jokes. Bottom line is this. If you love the show, then you're going to love the fact the stair card's back. We've got a new start. We've got no touching. There's no banana stand, unfortunately. And there's some new wrinkles as well. The best episode of the eight is episode six. And what's Ron Howard, who, and here's a question for you guys in just a second. If you're to rank, first off, the best, we'll do both. We'll do the best characters, you get top three. And then we're going to do the best minor characters because, and I'll tell you why, before I wouldn't have counted Ron Howard's narrator as a minor character, but I watched one episode. You realize how much narration is in those episodes? You can even argue he's a major character. You, could, you couldn't even do an episode of Rest of Out without his narration. There's literally one scene. It's like three lines of narration, two lines put up by Job, three lines of narration. Lucille said one word, three lines. Like, it's amazing how much narration they do. And at times, I don't even know if it's working. I don't even know if it's that funny, but it's so sophisticated. I mean, at the very least, Mitch Hurwitz is so ingrained in this style and sensibility that if you're an Arrested Development fan, at the very least, I can just sit there and appreciate what he's trying for because it must be so difficult to do. Rick? Well, that's one of the things, too. You talk about the narrator. It's become its own meme. Where people will like tweet something out or, or right. put a put a picture to it and say like you know, yeah Rick oh, he, thought this would change things he, no he didn't no it yeah. it obviously didn't and right. it's just like narrator <laughs> like it's it's its own meme now so that's that's how important that right. that character really yeah. it really is a character in its own sense so he actually plays himself in episode six which is the funniest of the eight if you're gonna just watch one Ron Howard and his family appear in episode six including Bryce Dallas Howard I mean it's meta upon meta I mean I've said as a guy who likes breaking the fourth wall. They're, the plot line is about Arrested Development being made into a TV show and a movie and Ron Howard greenlighting it. Like it's, that show is working at so many different levels that I'm like, I can't even keep up sometimes. And episode seven is also great. Henry Winkler, who is one of my choices for of the three minor characters. Winkler is an absolute no-brainer. I, I will die on my sword of Henry Winkler and his impact as Barry Peppercorn on Arrested Development. All right. Top three major characters. I think number one's a no-brainer with Job. Of course. Our Job's our one. Guy. First guest ever on Cinephile. Easy number one. Number two is Tobias for me is a never nude. And number three is Buster. I'm not doing minor characters, but I'm with you for your number one. Tobias, I think, is great. My cousin, he adores Buster. Uh, Tobias. So the people that love Tobias, he's David Cross is definitely great. But in, ep- in season four, I remember when he especially got a standalone episode, he's one of those characters where 
it has to be done in spurts. Like, like he cannot carry the entire show. You need Tobias for a couple of scenes, and he's great. He's always funny. All the plan words, is, you know, he's gay and his relationship with his daughter. It's all great. But you can't have too much Tobias. But I'm with you. He's awesome. He's probably my number two. Who's yours, Ricky? I'm with I'm with Dan. That that's right there. Can I can I make a case? Because I'm with you. Those I mean, Buster again. Tony Hale, friend of cinephile. This season might be one of Buster's best seasons. He's amazing in this season. He's so good, Tony Hale. Any push for Michael? Because Bateman's got to keep, and as, as a straight man, he's going to keep. These guys are all eccentric and crazy. All right, fine. Bateman's out. George Senior's out. I kind of like George Senior early on, but he's not as much. Here's the one I'm going to push you guys on. I'm going to take out Tobias Lucille. Every time Jessica Walter gives a line reading, it is cutting. It is scathing. The way she eviscerates her own daughter. I mean, just that character is so wonderfully mean spirited. I'm putting Lucille at the top. I'm telling you. There's not many roles for older women in theater or in film or in television. So are you not going to bust her awesome. Because, I, I mean, you need Lucille for a lot of Buster's comedy. I'll, All right, I'll take that. Tobias, so I'll keep Lucille. Nah, you're crazy. You don't think Lucille's great? Not better than Tobias. Ricky? It's close. What? What? I'm with you on like how well she delivers delivers yeah. the lines and how just just vitriolic she is <laughs> yes. in in most of her day to day goings on. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, like I think if you're gonna do anything, you got to if you want to set it up that way, Lucille slash Buster. Yeah. That's how, no, that's a bad call. That. All right, I'll take the hybrid. I like that. Um, Jason Bateman, by the way, was on Scott Feinberg's podcast, friend of the friend of cinephile. He made an excellent point, which I've often wondered. He said, "Why wasn't Arrested Development a bigger hit?" Why do you think it was? You know, it came out Fox 15 years ago. You guys won the Emmy for Best Comedy Series. Um, season two comes out. Ratings were never good. Season three got dumped. The last four episodes went up against, I want to say, the Super Bowl. Like, it, it was it was so bad. Last four episodes, they just could not care less Fox. And then it was resuscitated. And Babin said, I've given it a lot of thought. And he goes, I just think the way Mitch Hurwitz created it was it was never meant to have populist appeal. He said if the corners had been a little bit broader, if he'd made it a little bit more palatable to a wide mass audience, that would have worked. But the show was just so eccentric as constructed, and it was so – that specificity to it, I just don't think it's one of those shows that, that would go to mass appeal. And he goes, but the fans that loved it were, are going to be so passionate about it and vociferous about it. And I knew when we got canceled, there was a strong chance we'd resurface. And he goes, really? You you could see – he goes – because TV was just changing then. It was starting to go cable, starting to go page. And he goes, I was like, you know what? This show, again, like Cinephile, small but loyal following. He goes, these fans are going to step up. And he goes, plus, listen, we have Ron Howard. He goes, like, we got Ron and Grazer. And like, these are big names. And they cared about it so much that I'm like, we'll find a spot. He goes, I wasn't able to predict Netflix. But when it happened, I go, of course, this is perfect. Because Fox, to their credit, they don't want a show that only gets $4 million. He goes, that, we're going to cancel that show. He goes, they just canceled Brooklyn Nine-Nine. That wasn't getting $12 million. He goes, but Netflix, if they get four million streaming for rest development, they're overjoyed. They're over the moon. So he goes, this is perfect for us. So he goes, I never viewed it as a disappointment and I never blamed Fox. I was like, yeah, this probably just isn't a network show. We're probably our cable show. And now Netflix is perfect. And do I think we'll do another season? Probably. And he goes, how about a movie? He goes, no, because again, a movie has to have populist appeal. It's got to open in 2000 screens. You're going to have a 20 million dollar opening weekend. He goes, that's not a rest development. We're always that kind of indie hit and the people that love us really love us. Ricky. Yeah, that's 100%. And I, I think I remember right, I was in college. I was either a senior in high school or freshman in college when it got canceled. Right. So I was one of the people that was late to the game. Like DVD came out. Right. Had access to it through the school library. I was like, okay, now I'll check it out. And, you know, ben, that was the advent of the great binge watches. Yeah. yeah. Like that was how I started. And I got through it that same, that same way. Eight episodes came out now. Another eight episodes, I believe, are in the can or Mitch Schwartz's editing will come out later in the year. 
You're right about being late to the party, although this show was pretty early on. I remember my friends, Mike Kiss and Andrew Lashevsky told me, you got to watch this show. And I want to say episode four or five, uh, where Michael and maybe are in a school play and Tobias sucks on the pencil. Like I literally was like, all right, this show is unbelievable. Like I'm, I'm in on this show. So I, I felt I was early in on it. I don't think I've ever seen a great show from the beginning. Like Sopranos, I heard about it midway through season one and then I watched it. Breaking Bad, I missed season one and Stephen King wrote an op-ed in Entertainment Weekly. He said, this is the best show on television. And then season two, I picked it up and eventually went back season one. Danny, how early in Arrested Development's run did you discover? I was way late. I binge watched it after the fact. Didn't watch it live. Um, but you just mentioned being in on a show early. I was Mad Men week one. Really? Oh, yeah. Oh, that's okay. How did that happen? How did I, think you I know? must have read about it or seen something on it. And I was like, oh, that sounds interesting. Just like getting a, a look at the, the way of the time where my parents grew up. I, I'm not a period piece guy, but I was sure. like, oh, this, this seems interesting. And they sold it as former writer on the wire. Um, I mean, some stuff's happened since then. Yeah, man. Um, and yeah, week one. Dude, that's early adopter. Okay, that, you can update your Twitter bio. That's pretty incredible. I mean, like, I'm a tastemaker, Adnan. <laughs> we ever meet John Hand, that's the first thing you got to tell him. Like, dude, I always had on episode one. Arrested Development, I'll give it three Maple Leafs. I mean, listen, if you're a fan of the show, it's, it's just so grateful to have them back again. Not as funny as some of the other ones, but I still really did enjoy it. And uh, like I said, I don't want to spoil too much of it. All right, now time for our special guest. So let me set the stage for you. It's the closing of Yankee Stadium, and I look over and I see Reggie Jackson. Ordinarily, I would want to talk to the straw who stirs the drink, but instead, I was more transfixed by the person he was speaking to, a man wearing New Balance running shoes and a black football night in America golf shirt. Yes, indeed, it was my favorite broadcaster, Keith Overman. I would not hesitate. I went over, introduced myself, and Keith was kind and gracious enough to give me 20 minutes of his time, including a strong advocating for Joe Gordon to be in the Hall of Fame. We then got ushered off by the groundskeepers, and so it was. I had a wonderful moment with my favorite broadcaster. Who could have predicted Keith would then return to ESPN? I would then fill in on his show 25 times, and now he's back again. KO lives, and now he's on Cinephile. Keith, welcome back, sir, again. Well, you know, Adnan, the, the idea of my returning uh, provokes this explanation, which is that all of human history divides into two distinct complementary periods. One is those times I am working for ESPN, and the other is those times when I am in discussions to go back and work for ESPN again. Well, that's all of it. It's either one or the other at all times. So we're back in the first of the waves here for stint number six. Seriously, K.O., how much does Aaron Sorkin owe you? He clearly used the template of you and Dan and, and the big show for Sports Night. And then when he made the show The Newsroom, I don't know if he openly admitted it, but everyone said, okay, he's basing this on a liberal lean, liberal uh, politics host clearly is cribbing from Countdown, etc. I think he followed you around the show. Honestly, Aaron Sorkin's a brilliant guy, but I'm hoping he's paying your residuals because you are the influence for two major achievements in his career. Well, number one, I don't know anything about politics, so I don't know what you're referring to there. <laughs> two, um, the, the the he said he was going to pay me uh, residuals on, on the newsroom, uh, and oddly enough, didn't because three... Uh, I made a joke when the newsroom was still in the offing uh, to a guy from the New York Times named Dave Hitzkoff, who's a very good writer, um, particularly in, in television and film, and um, is an expert on like, the movie network. And, and Dave just said, well, what do you think about this? Because we've all seen the pilot. And it's, you know, clearly it didn't, the character may not be you, but the storyline obviously is you. Right. Um, and uh, I said, well, I said, you know, he did this before. 
And I was cool with it because he had, he was, you know, we had long conversations about it. There was even a, a discussion of Mike possibly coming on and playing an evil character who shuts down the all sports cable network, uh, who's revealed in like the last episode. He says, I, the only line would have been, I hate sports. You're all fired. And, uh, that, that was cool. And I said, the, the, what's nice this time is that he's going to, you know, it's nice to know in advance that there's going to be a TV series based on part of your life. And he took, he, he apparently broke into a rage over this statement and thus told everybody that it had nothing to do with me, that he, didn't, he barely knew me, that he, uh, that none of the character was based on me, that anything was a total coincidence. And he, he, he saw dozens and dozens of broadcasters and had nothing, nothing whatsoever uh, to the point where people who I did not know who were associated with that series, like, like the great Jeff Daniel would do interviews saying, I'm saying, sorry, Keith, but the character is not based on you. And it was, um, it was, it would have been a lot more believable, except that uh, he hired my assistant, who was the one who conducted him on his the, the two or three days he spent with us, sort of shadowing people and to see how it actually worked. Uh, he hired her as an actress and named a character in the series after her. So there were actually he hired her twice, and. The all-time punchline of punchlines to this is as follows. I had, um, um, on that first day he came to MSNBC to see how the show worked, he was late. He was about half an hour late. And that was crazy because he was staying in a hotel three blocks from NBC. And when he came in, he said, I'm sorry, I made the mistake. of He said, I should have just walked. I don't know why I didn't walk. I just got in the, in the, in the car. And when we got tr- turned around in traffic and streets were blocked and everything, I said, well, as my, as my, uh, my late dad used to say, New York will be a great town whenever they finish it. And he <laughs> laughed and I laughed. And about uh, six episodes into the newsroom, um, the uh, Daniels character is, is, has to cover the, the um, uh, elimination of bin Laden. And he's stoned to the gills. I think he's high on LSD or whatever it is. And he's um, he, he's on his way to the office, and he's delayed by traffic. And he says to, the, to his driver bodyguard, "Well, where, what's wrong? Uh, construction?" He goes on a Sunday night, and the guy goes, "Yeah." And Jeff Daniels, as this character for the newsroom, says, "New York, it'll be a great town whenever they finish it." And I got texts and emails um, and phone calls from every like every one of my former girlfriends almost all of whom had heard this line directly from my father saying, he just quoted you. <laughs> it's, it's word for word. And I, years later at the Stephen Colbert farewell party, the last episode of that, I was stuck in a green room and my green room mate was uh, Jeff Daniels. I'd always admired it, never met. And he saw me and I saw him. We started laughing. He goes, listen, let me explain to you why I was saying. And I went, let me explain to you why that what made no sense. At the end of the conversation, he said, so I owe you a series of apologies. I went, no, how the hell are you supposed to know? So the, the uh, sports night one was fine because we, uh, Aaron and I did an interview uh, in which I interviewed him. And I said, well, there's some confusion as to what the origin of sports night was. And he said, no, there's no confusion. It was you. And to some degree, Dan, and to some degree, Craig Kilborn. He said it was principally you. And the, one of the problems with the show was both of the characters acted like you. And so there was no real tension between the two of them as there should have been. I went, yes, well, you know, you can't have two virtuous 
sportscasters co-anchoring a show. It would never work. It'd never be real. <laughs> that part, part was fine. But whatever happened to him in the intervening years, uh, the newsroom, he didn't want anybody to think that other people had contributed to this. And there was an article written by another mutual friend of ours who had been a gossip columnist. And she, I mean, I heard one line that was directly taken from my life and the pilot of the newsroom in which the guy comes back from vacation. And while he's been away, um, it wasn't a vacation in my case. It was the, the month after my father died. But I came back to find my guest host was was getting his own show. And while I was gone, he was trying to steal most of my staff from me and move them to his show, which is the, pot, the plot, the, it's the side thing, it's off which everything hangs, in the pilot of the newsroom. That was bad enough. But, but my friend found, as this woman, the gossip reporter, spoke in the newsroom, that uh, her, her emails to and from Aaron, who she had gone out on dates with, some of her emails had been cut and pasted into the, into the uh, dialogue for the, for the gossip columnist in the show. And it wasn't, not even similarities, but word for word, the entire conversations were based on Jeff Daniels talking to words that were written by an actual gossip columnist in emails to Aaron Sorkin. So something happened there. I, I don't know that, you're, that, the, that the, the creative muse may have left him and he started to have to borrow other people's muses. So. <laughs> unbelievable. We're talking with mm-hmm. Keith Oberman. Tom Jumbo Grumbo on BoJack Horseman. We love Will Arnett, despite his love for the Toronto Maple Leafs and that sad sack mm-hmm. franchise. Tell me about this role, because clearly this is one satirizing you. You're playing a whale on the show for those who are unavailable, a newscaster. How did that role come about? It was very simple. Um, the the experience with uh, with that I had with uh, Family Guy with Seth MacFarlane, who I knew for for, for a while, and I haven't been in touch with Seth for a few years. But I used to quote Family Guy periodically on the news broadcast, and and Seth was a was a fan, and we got we met, and and he did some voiceovers for Countdown, and I did some voiceovers for Family Guy, and he actually let me play a character. And the, the casting agent for that um, was the peop- was the was the woman to whom the the uh, people from uh, from BoJack turned when they were doing the pilot. And apparently, they said we're, we'd like to get like a Keith Olbermann kind of stentorian broadcaster with that kind of level of intensity, uh, not political, but just him. But we want to make like sort of the the silly version, the the dumb version of him satirizing his intensity by making the stuff all, you know, giving him a background as a former host on Entertainment Tonight and that kind of thing. And who do you think we could get to do that? She said, he'll do it. (laughs) (laughs) And they called, they called me and they said, yeah, this is, we're doing a pilot for this and it will pay, oh, maybe 175, maybe $200. And I said, send it over. Let me see what it, I can't wait to read it. I don't know if I'll do it, but I mean, I don't know why I wouldn't. And I read it. I thought it was one of those brilliant things I ever read. And I went, so, so do I have to pay you 175 or, or do I have the whole 200 to go and do this? And they went, no, you got it the other way around. So I went and recorded these, these, these sides for the lines. And, uh, I was in the pilot. So, you know, I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm in a, con- uh, a recording studio on, uh, near times near, near, uh, near the New York library down the block from the New York library. And, after we do all the lines, uh, the guys who were uh, who who, uh, who were behind this, in I think if I'm remembering correctly, the creator 
of the series, uh, Raphael Bob Watsberg was the uh, was the. I also I often think of him as Bob Raphael Watsberg or Bob Watsberg Raphael because he has three sort of interchangeable names. And I was just like, okay, that was great. And he goes, listen, let me ask you a question. When you were doing the news, if you had been an actual whale, uh, and I was thinking, okay, where are we going with this? He says, if you had been an actual whale and had gotten so angry during one of your commentaries that you just had to let out a kind of rage-filled scream through your blowhole, what do you think that would sound like? <laughs> and I said, well, you know, if I got $10 for every time I got asked that question, I would be, you know, a very, very rich man rather than just a very rich man. And he said, uh, he said, any chance you could do it? I went, I'll do it. I said, I don't want to, I don't want to hear it on ringtone anywhere or something, but I'll do it. Let's see it. So for a couple of minutes, I did these wild tracks of just making this, kind of uh, high-pitched anger sound as loud as I could through my nose. And I'm listening back on headphones to them in Los Angeles, just, you know, busting up at this sound. I went, do I ever have to do this again? They went, no, we think we have enough. So <laughs> I, it's been my privilege to be associated with that thing. And, and uh, it's, you know, before it was, I can literally say, I, I think I was the first guest star. I mean, I think there was uh, uh, Pat Oswalt was already seen as a kind of a, a utility player on that show who would do a bunch of voices and everybody else was cast and it was uh, it was, it was my pleasure to do it then and, rem- and it remains so. I haven't heard anything about a new season which I know is everybody's next concern but uh, it's just about as good as anything I've ever seen on television and I'm just coming from somebody who is on like one eighth of all the episodes. So I'm not selling the product or anything. I don't think I have to, but if you haven't seen it, it is, you think of it, it was an animated, it's an animated comedy series about anthropomorphic animals who do entertainment. It's like, no, it's a little bit, a little bit, a little bit deeper than that. I mean, to take the, you know, take the animation format and run with it as, as satire is pretty standard stuff. It goes back to the, I don't know, at the Mickey Mouse for, for crying out loud, but it's uh, it, this is this is to take the, the 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 animation format and say let's make it social commentary, including dark stuff and unfulfillment of life and uh, what happens when you used to be in television and you're not anymore. I mean, it's 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 some deep stuff and sometimes awfully disturbing, but the the through line of all of it is really good, and I've never read anything better written. That's for sure. Levels upon levels. Bojack Horseman, definitely check it out. Keith, I love the movies of the 70s. I'm always jealous because you at least could have seen movies of that era. I was born in 78, and when I go back and watch those movies, you know, Mean Streets is one of my favorites. Taxi Driver is a film that I adore. And one movie that I know you and I are both particularly passionate about, you mentioned Dave Itzkoff. I got his book from Sorosa, and it's a book about network. For people who have not seen network, can you please... I tried to explain to them how prescient the show was. It, it, I mean, this movie was rather. I watched it again, and and every facet of it, you know, the Patty Shafsky script, all the dialogue, pages upon pages, the way that it's delivered by these actors, Sidney Lumet's very careful direction, and the fact it's yeah. so acidic. I mean, what is it about that film that you particularly enjoy? Because at the height of Countdown, people started to say that you were becoming this character. You are mad as hell and not going to take it anymore. And it, the film is so much more than just that one line, isn't it? 
Oh yeah, and and I might say I was not the first person who to whom those famous lines were ascribed or compared to or any of that. Right. And when I heard it for the first time, I took it as a compliment. I know most right. of the people who have have taken it as a compliment. Right, a modern uh, day I, Howard Beale. Yeah, yeah, yeah and I, I mean, I've been hearing that about somebody since probably the day I broke into television in 1981 because. One of the more interesting things about the timing, and you mentioned the prescience, it's impossible to recreate for a new viewer of the film what differed in television news or in television, indeed, in that time compared to now. But you have to have to accept this as a reality. I did for Dave, in fact, for Itzkoff. Um, he asked me a couple of questions, and I'm in the book in a couple of places. But I, I said, if you're writing this book, let me write this down for you, because it has long been my contention that there have to be at least two dozen um, individual prescient um, observations about what the television news industry was going to turn into based on the success of Howard Beale. The fact that when he went crazy on the air, instead of that being the end of it, he, he, his ratings quadrupled, and uh, once you accept that, then everything that follows is a is a basic forecast about the idea. Of, uh, as soon as the television news division started to make money, things or or to be asked to make money, things would change utterly and 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 irretrievably. And uh, my final count for this list that I made for Itzkoff was twenty three separate changes in television news that are now so uh, routine that no one would ever wonder that there was a, an origin point. It's like saying, well, well, the sun has always uh, come up in the east, right? No, you know, you know, actually, before the movie network, where it was prophesied that it would come up in the east, it used to come up in the southwest. I mean, it's really that kind of big, and, and it ranges from basically putting on borderline personalities like Glenn Beck, people who are in the throes of some kind of psychic distress um, from from instead of saying get him off he's crazy he could say anything to put him on in prime time he's crazy he could say anything i'm sure similar things have been said about me as well but but my uh my point is that apart from those huge ones there's so many small things like this the new newscast hour the the network news hour that they put on after Howard Beale goes crazy as the newscaster, this marvelous production of, of, a, of a persona by Peter Finch. I don't, it's not even acting. It's a guy. Uh, it's a real-life figure who just happens to only exist for the two hours of that film. Um, the network news hour includes a segment on skeletons in the closet, uh, Mata Hari and her skeletons in the closet or whatever it is, and it's, that, that's all gossip news that's on local news, television news, cable news, whatever. They didn't have gossip news. There was, on a couple of the cheesier newscasts in local television in America in 1976, there was a gossip reporter. It was usually a syndicated feature by a woman named Rona Barrett. And the gossip consisted largely of who was going to get a movie role. And it was two minutes, two minutes a day, as opposed to, you know, entire networks devoted to this and an industry almost as big as the entertainment industry is the industry about the entertainment industry. This was transformed in the movie to a regular nightly feature on the nightly news. Um, the next segment that they advertise as these, this, the show starts is Vox Populi, in which polls are treated as news into the 90s. If you if your newscast, 
your story was based on polling. It was like, well, this isn't a real newscast because a poll is a bunch of crap. And it's just a public opinion. It's like stopping people in the street. It's not scientifically valid. And it usually most of the, the vetting process and the authenticity to a poll ends where it should begin. But that was prophesied. So it's great, big, sweeping changes in news, like what they would be willing to do to make money off of it, down to the little details that, that uh, Chayefsky got right. And it's it, you, you cannot successfully watch this show, this movie, to understand the impact it, it, it must have had on the industry. I, I hate to think that he let the genies out of the bottles, but, but I think he did. Uh, to some degree. And I know that that it was a different world. He said, here's how it's going to change. You just need one thing to change in it, one principal thing. The likeliest bit is there's some overwhelming character who articulates the rage of America and becomes all-powerful as a result of it. And you could very well argue that the list is now um, 24 with the election of the last president. Um, so, you know, that, that that whole mechanism is far broader even than, than television news. And it's just, it's, it's, it's like saying, well, here's the way the world was before we had written language. How do you convey that to somebody? Um, within television news, he saw all these changes coming, and he saw them based on one thing, which was if the television networks don't, um, are not allowed to lose money and to be independent of the entertainment division, uh, you will have, in fact, opened Pandora's box. And he was absolutely right. All these things, you know, changed it completely and not not by any stretch of the imagination for the good. Yeah, Network, one of the all-time classics. If you haven't seen it, trust me, check it out. Last one for you, Keith, and thank you for being mm -hmm. so generous with the time. Nobody sure. loves baseball more than you, and so I get a little bit, a little bit of trepidation as I ask you this question of your favorite baseball movie. Cause I fear a movie that I love like eight men out. You're going to tell me, well, it's rife with inaccuracies. How could you possibly like John Sales's film? Tim Kirkton has told me he despises the natural because again, he has issues with the historical inaccuracies, but I'm so curious. What is your favorite baseball film? Well, it would have to be either the natural or eight men out. Nice. Um, <laughs> the, most, I hate to say this. Most baseball films are not about baseball and movies like bull durham have baseball moments in them and uh they're enjoyable um major league it's enjoyable it's worthy of your time just to watch bob Uecker on film because someday we won't have that and it's not that far from real life bob Uecker. <laughs> so we have that but these are not baseball films right. the natural would have been hands down in my mind the best baseball film ever made but they changed the ending yeah and you know, it kind of it's a it's a it, the whole thing is a is a is a morality play. It is it is a, um, it really is about it's everything that happened bad and corrupt in baseball for thirty years. And Bernard Mellon that wrote that, and it ends in a certain way. And I won't ruin it for you, but it, particularly if you enjoyed the film, read the book, and then you'll have a bad day. But you'll understand why. A lot of us were sitting in the, in the theater seeing that. I remember seeing it for the first time. I was working in Boston, and I was reviewing, going to do a piece for it on the 11 o'clock news on Channel 5. And I'm sitting there going, this is the amount of detail that they went to to give, not accuracy, but verisimilitude, what you're supposed to do in a film. It doesn't have to be accurate. Like It was the um, Field of Dreams argument. Welcome, Joe Jackson's a right-handed hitter. That isn't true to reality. And the director saying, we also brought him back from the dead. That isn't true to reality either. Give it, just relax for a moment. You can do, <laughs> but 
you change the ending of it so that he doesn't throw the game. And the, that's the point of it is that that's not the ending of the book. As to Eight Men Out, I looked forward to this with great anticipation because it was um, yeah, it was faithful to the the story that we knew at the time. But more importantly, it was really the first attempt to go and do a baseball movie that looked authentic in all ways. Uh, it was it, it had to be, it was limited by and again the, the facts of what happened during the World Series of 1919 are still open in many places for great debate. But the the idea that that certain things happened and certain things could not possibly have happened, and we had to make the stadiums look the right way and the film the players had to look the right way, then we had to have you know characters who looked and behaved like Eddie Seacott would have and Joe Jackson and all the, and all the gamblers, I, I thought, and, and by the way, and John sales, uh, in the cameo as ring Lardner, Lardner, one of my favorite writers of all time is absolutely, absolutely outstanding. I, I'm I forever blowing ball games. It was so yes. good that moment. And I, and I got to interview sales about it right after I saw the screening. I mean, it did about half an hour with him at a, a, a bungalow in a, a hotel in LA and I said, I just can't, I can't get over how much they made you look like Lardner. And he was like, you like that? I went, I just, you know, there was a, one of Ring Lardner's relatives did the local news in L.A. on one of the stations. And, and I said, I'm not going to tell her that you looked like her because I don't know that she's going to take it as a compliment. But you look, I could see her in the way they made you up. But I, I mean, for, for, for being able to feel the sweat in the hotel room in the middle of the night in unair-conditioned America, 1919. That's as good as almost any film could be, let alone any baseball film. The problem with Eight Men Out is, how do you how do you surprise people with the outcome? You don't. I mean, it's anybody who's going to go see that film probably knows. Guess what happens? Uh, so you've got to really make it, it to give it a kind of magic. I don't know if he actually succeeded in doing that but i don't know how he would have done better so that's probably in terms of of you know if a baseball if i want to see a baseball film that's the one i would pull down and watch now you're right about the ending that you're robbed of suspense although there are certainly are moments when, when john mahoney as kid gleason says this is the best damn team i've ever seen period and they explode in applause that's a nice scene and i like the ending i thought it was mournful in that the way that he kind of views and says listen he was the best i've ever seen buck weaver's kind of looking back at the passage of yeah time. Well, you could do now, and and we didn't know then because you know things pop up, and 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 the internet is is a wonderful tool for stuff like this. If Sales did that film now, he could introduce a lot of elements of uncertainty as to you know what did Joe Jackson do, and what did he know, and when did he know it, and what did Seacott uh, do, and um, I, I just it, it it's also that film is particularly great because again it's very difficult to go back in time and see the effect of those those performers for the first time, other than Charlie Sheen, um, and, and to some degree, uh, uh, well, but, but people didn't, I mean, he, I'm trying to remember this, the sequence of the timing, the, uh, the mining film was before, and it was at, was it before or after eight men out? Oh, it was before. Yeah, you're right. Yeah. All right. So he'd been in that and that was like, that's, that's an actor. Right. But but all of those other characters or all of those other actors, including William Mahoney and everybody else, these were not household names. Right. And to see them perform early and go, that's that's this is some serious acting. And I I saw 
uh, Strathairn many years later after after uh, good night and good luck. Oh, yeah. And I saw him in the lobby at MSNBC, and I stopped him and I said, I may be the only person who can comment on your Eddie Murrow versus your Eddie Seacott. <laughs> and I have to, because I thought they were both outstanding. He was very gracious about it. But it was, uh, it's, it's uh, Eight Men Out. It's a great film, and, and you just wish, geez, I wish the information that became available in the ensuing 10 years about the actual events around the scandals in 1919 had been available to sales at that point. It might have been a spectacular, almost a, almost dramatic conclusion to it. But, you know, as it is, uh, if you don't mind knowing how it turns out, it's it's a great film. Once again, his name is Keith Olbermann. You can find him on Twitter, at Keith Olbermann. Next time we chat, KO, I want to talk Lou Lamorello, Dale Earnhardt, Roseanne, Sean Hannity. Until then, thank you very much for the time, sir, and thrilled to have you with us in a larger capacity here at ESPN. Thank you, Adam. Pleasure to be with you, and uh, I don't know two of the names you just mentioned. <laughs> well done. And now, a thought from Geico Motorcycle. It took 15 minutes to click on the banner ad entitled, You Won't Believe What These Child Stars Look Like Now. Be dissatisfied, and kind of sad, about how the child stars look. And now your computer is plagued by incessant pop-up ads. Oh, this can't be good. To add insult to injury, you could have used those 15 clickbait minutes to switch your motorcycle insurance to GEICO. GEICO. 15 minutes could save you 15% or more on motorcycle insurance. Streaming suggestions. I can't wait for someone to chime in. Go ahead. Donnie Brasca, number six. How do you have Dick Tracy at number six? I do love Pacino and Dick Tracy. Big boy Caprice. Netflix, Blue Jasmine. I don't know if people still watch Woody Allen movies anymore, but if you want to watch Woody Allen movie, Blue Jasmine is excellent. Um, the real shock of this movie is Andrew Dice Clay. is very good in the movie. He resurfaces. That's right. Dice is back. Kate Blanchett, one of her best performances. Speaking of casts, I love Bobby Cannavale and Sally Jenkins. You know her from The Shape of Water. She also plays the sister in Blue Jasmine. It's an excellent film. Uh, rather heartbreaking about mental illness. I was raving about Pacino earlier. One of the worst movies of his career and one of the worst movies of Robert De Niro's career. Righteous Kill is currently available on Netflix. If you'd like to see an awfully putrid film... With 50 Cent as one of the supporting actors, go ahead and try sitting through this one. I saw it once in the theater. I've tried to extricate it from my memory ever since. June 2nd is the King's Speech, because I bloody well stammer. Check out Colin Firth, and if you watch the DVD or one of the trailers, go online. Find on YouTube. Ben Lines is one of the blurbs raving about the King's Speech. Very cool. June 5th is Thor Ragnarok. Fun movie. I really enjoyed it. And June 16th is In Bruges. If you love three billboards outside Ebbing, Missouri, that's the film that put Martin McDonough on the map. He wrote the script for it. Excellent comedy. Wonderful script. Colin Farrell stars in that along with Brendan Gleeson. On HBO Go is A Perfect World. Kevin Costner, one of the first roles where he played a villain. Very atypical role for him playing Butch, directed by Clint Eastwood, who just celebrated his 88th birthday. Happy birthday, Clint. Also, Napoleon Dynamite is on HBO Go. Vote for Pedro. And Blade Runner 2049. That film finally won Roger Deakins, one of the great cinematographers of all time, his long-coveted Oscar. On Amazon Prime, I've talked a lot about Age of Innocence, how much I love that. Also, Lady Bird is available, Dan Stanzik's favorite film of 2017, and The Running Man, which just is going to allow me to tell my family feud story, because one of the guys in Running Man is Richard Dawson. It's a Schwarzenegger movie, based on uh Stephen King novel. But this is my uh, story about Family Feud and Running Man, because Richard Dawson was on... Is in The Running Man. He was obviously one of the hosts of Family Feud. Ray Combs was also one of the hosts of Family Feud. Rick Sutcliffe just told me this story. He's told me this before, but I want to tell it to a wider audience. Wally Joyner and Sutcliffe and these MLB players were on Family Feud. And the question was, <laughs> if you poll 100 men, 
What is the ideal age of a woman? 23. Ricky? 26. All right. The correct answer is 21, which I actually said. So you guys are in the ballpark. But the first answer, whoever it was, had, let's say King Griffey Jr. King Griffey Jr. said 21. So Wally Jr. is going to come in next, and he needed like 63 points to go. And apparently he's already a little bit of a nervous Nelly. And so when he got asked that Real quick, is this fast money? It's got to be fast money. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. So when he is asked, hey, out of 100 people polled, how many, what's the ideal age a man wants of a woman? He said 21. And then he heard that obnoxious, Eh, 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 like, and he just panicked. He goes, uh, 16. Richard, That's illegal. Apparently, Rayco, like, he hit the floor laughing so hard. Like, I, I have to find the clip. Suckers, you can look it up. He hit the floor laughing so hard. And Wally Joyner's wife and four daughters, who were all sitting there on cue, got up and left. <laughs> 16. Like, whoa, whoa, what are we doing here? <laughs> 21, right? College girl, 23. Perfect. I mean, whatever age you are. Like, oh, yeah. 16? Yeah, I think I read somewhere that uh, men, if you if you men are polled throughout their lifespan, and the answer is always twenty one. I assumed it was twenty three. I had that a little off. Right. And if you ask women, it's always like a few years older than uh, they are. So if you ask a forty five year old woman the ideal age of a man, she always says like forty seven or forty eight. Right. For men, you ask a forty eight year old man, he says twenty one <laughs> all the time. It never changes. Oh, it's great. All right, Hulu. Two days in the valley. She released her on. She looks like she's 21 in that movie. She's unbelievable. Check that out. Plus, Danny Aiello. Uh, one of those movies that was inspired by Tarantino and Pulp Fiction. If you haven't seen it, it came out in 1996. I haven't seen it in a long time. I'd love to revisit it. Also, Bowfinger. I love that movie. Steve Martin and Martin Short have their special on Netflix right now. I'll review it next time on Cinefile. I haven't had a chance yet. But I, I think Bowfinger, one of those underrated comedies. Martin and Eddie Murphy are great. I love the scene at the end. The UPS driver cracks me up every time. Also, if you love Guillermo del Toro, Hellboy is currently available on Hulu. That is a movie very much out of his fevered imagination. And I want Rick Passman to do an in-defense of this movie, Spawn. I don't think he got nearly enough Ooh. love. I think that's a terrific comic book movie. I, I'm with you. It's been a it's been a while since I've watched it, but I remember Leguizamo is fantastic. Yeah. He's so over the top, but perfect <laughs> for that character. Well, I'll uh, you know what? I'll take you up on that because Good. they are uh, rebooting that uh, in the next couple years. So that will be uh, coming up on In Defensive. I love it. Spawn. Check it out on Hulu. A Hollywood career spanning decades. And the tales of Tinseltown are told here. Inside the Lion's Den with Ben Lyons. Oh, man, Adnan, that intro's got me fired up. Not Little League Baseball in Connecticut fired up, but pretty darn close. Um, This week's episode, uh, I thought I'd share with you a story about hanging out with Tyrese in Russia. One time we were over there for Transformers 3. We were at a Lincoln Park show, and we were like, this is kind of boring. Let's go back to the hotel and get some sushi. So me, Tyrese, and a couple of us go back to the hotel. We get some sushi. We're having sushi. I'm like, Tyrese, what are your favorite movies as a kid growing up? He said, I loved Ghostbusters. It was the only VHS my family had. And I said, oh, man, Ghostbusters 2, the guy in the painting, totally freaked me out. And he looked at me, put the tuna roll down, and he said, Ghostbusters 2? Question mark. Dude, I had no idea there was a sequel to Ghostbusters. Then we're finishing up the meal, and he's like, hey, I just put myself on tape for Django Unchained. Do you want to check it out? Like, all right, cool. So then he showed me his seven-minute audition tape for Django Unchained. Ultimately, Tyrese didn't get the role, but I was proud of him for putting himself on tape unsolicited and sending it to Quentin Tarantino. Then we ended up going to the rooftop, 
he DJed till 4 o'clock in the morning, and we watched the sunrise. That was my night in Russia with Tyrese, one of my favorite dudes in Hollywood. Thanks, Adnan. He's just an average man with an average life. And his reviews dictate that. Oh, right up my alley. First and foremost. Playing to my strengths. Dan Stanzik is. I thought it was a little, little much. Every man. Average man with an average life. I really resent that open. Like the producer of the number one sports radio show in the country. Average, average life. Average man. <laughs> average life. All right. So in the past, we've had such films as I Love You, Man, which I thought was appropriate to your anniversary of Cinephile. We've also had uh, movies like Michael Clayton. So you've, you've definitely run the gamut here of highbrow and then, shall we say, a little more accessible. I'm going to start Adnan Verk style here with a quote. Yes. Okay, good. Anybody that ever built an empire or changed the world sat where you are. And it's because they sat there, they were able to do it. Up in the Air. Yes. A 2009 Jason Reitman film starring George Clooney, Vera Farmiga, and Anna Kendrick. And in case you're wondering if it's George Clooney month at the Stanzik residence, because I recently reviewed Michael Clayton, every month is George Clooney month at the Stanzik residence. Nice. Clooney plays Ryan Bingham, as I've previously described him, a cocksure career transition counselor. In other words, he travels the country firing people for companies that are too scared to do it themselves. In his words, he is there, quote, to make limbo tolerable, to ferry wounded souls across the river of dread until a point where hope is dimly visible, and then stop the boat, shove them in the water, and make them swim. Bingham loves his life on the road. His cocoon of self-banishment, airports, hotels, and rental cars are preferable to the miserable 43 days he spent in his home base of Omaha last year. Bingham thinks he has purpose. He gives speeches across the country in hotel conference rooms. How much does your life weigh? Imagine for a second that you're carrying a backpack. I want you to feel the straps on your shoulders. Feel them? He has a goal to become the seventh member of the 10 Million Mile Club, and he even meets a like-minded woman in Vera Farmiga. So like-minded, in fact, she tells him to, quote, just think of me as yourself, only with a vagina. Post-copulation, they compare customer loyalty cards and cross-reference their schedules to plan future trysts. Bingham's life hits some turbulence when his boss, played by a friend of the podcast Jason Bateman, tells him that he's needed in Omaha. He's been grounded. An Ivy League upstart named Natalie, played by Anna Kendrick, has developed a video conference system that will save the company 85% on travel and expenses. After some pushback by Bingham and a failed fake firing by Natalie, Bateman capitulates. He agrees to send Bingham back on the road for a limited time, but with Natalie in tow so that she can learn the ropes. Kendrick is a revelation. She is sharp, witty, clumsy, funny, naive, competent, and she is emotional. The role was undoubtedly her coming out party and earned her an Oscar nomination for Best Supporting Actress. For what it's worth, Farmiga was also nominated for Best Supporting Actress, and Clooney got a Best Actor nomination. The firing scenes really hit home and captured the feeling of the time as Reitman used people from Detroit and St. Louis who had recently been fired to lean on their experience. He also used Zach Alfanakis and true friend of the podcast because he's been on it, J.K. Simmons. Up in the Air is billed as a comedy and there is plenty of amusement, but the more times I see it, the more I see it as a tragedy. Clooney shows some real vulnerability while his character is a proud bachelor, much in the way that Clooney himself was at the time. He eventually learns that life's better with company because everybody needs a co-pilot. 
Very well written. Excellent last line. Up in the I know it's one of your favorites, so I thought it was about time. And I'm glad. I was worried you were going to start to just go with comedies. We had a long came Paul. I love you, man. Now he goes shift back. Going a little highbrow here in the Stanzik world, but great film. I got to be honest. When I was going back and looking for questions for the quiz, I caught the first ever Everyman where you described, or maybe it was in the podcast where you teased that the Everyman was coming or that you were going to give us all segments and you described it as movies that I love, and I explained why they love them. I was like, all right, let's get back to some movies I actually yes. I like. That was in my top 10 of, well, what did we do? Since top 2000. The, yeah, top 10 of the century. I think that was number 10. I love that scene you're right where they show people who have actually been fired. It was a really smart touch by Reitman. Uh, to, like I said, add that docufiction, add that feeling of what people have actually been through it. Might be Clooney's best role. I mean, he's just, he's shrewd, he's calculating, he's charming, he's sweet, he's vulnerable. I mean, he's, he really, Descendants might be another one too. I mean, it's up there. They're both. I'm, Michael Clayton for me is way up there too. Yeah, I think those are his top three. Sirianni won the Oscar pro, but I wouldn't put that in his top three. Supporting role, he's great. And he, I finally got fat in it. Awesome. Great. 40 pounds, he won an Oscar. Kendrick Deathly Revelation, very sweet. I mean, that gut punch when you find out, like, whoa, she's married? What is this? Spoiler go? alert. Not what are you doing? It's been an, I didn't say who, by the way. It's been enough years. It's just like, wow. And then, and then her, her just coldness to her. Like, I didn't, I didn't expect anything. I didn't. I'm like, man, what a burp. Dan Stanzik's every man up in the air. We might, we, I, hang on. I want to go deeper in this. Our favorite movies we find parallels with. Are you somebody who would like to travel extensively? Would you have you thought about this? It's funny because the last two days I've been in airports and on airplanes for the majority of the day, and it's kind of miserable and hotels and all that. Um, I would like to travel the world, the United States. Yeah, certainly, but but there's nothing you find romanticized about his lifestyle, the way he's traveling all the time. He wants to get a certain miles. And no, I, I don't. I, I actually. I just remember loving it because of Kendrick. Just yeah. the way she interacts with his character, I right. think was great. But when I watched it again recently, I was like, "This like his life philosophy was all wrong. Like right. he 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 really missed the mark on that." And you realize it for him at the end of the movie, right? You see, the West is the way the rest of his family lives. They've they've got it right. Hey, we have modest means, whatever. But we live our lives, and we have family. We have someone. Like you're wrong. Dan Stanzik's every man. Excellent film. Up in the air. When a film critic and director don't see eye to eye, Rick Passmore goes in defense of. All right, Ricky, I threw this one upon you because I didn't know if you had one already planned, but Solo, which I did not review, uh, apparently like many moviegoers, I just couldn't be forced to go see it. I just said, all right, I know it's a Star Wars film, prequel, okay, origin story. I do want to see it at some point, but lukewarm reviews and a disappointing box office. We discussed this with Deadpool 2. How can $100 million be disappointing for Solo? But that, in fact, was the case. Uh, we love Ron Howard. Maybe I like him more as a narrator than as a director of this movie. But I didn't see Solo. You saw it. Tell me all about it. Well, it's interesting because Ron Howard didn't start with the project. Right. Um, Phil Lord and Chris Miller started with the project and uh, were replaced with Howard about 30% of the way through because uh, Disney and Lucasfilm did not like the tone of the film the way it was going. So... <clears throat> You bring in Ron Howard, who obviously award win Academy Award winning director, like just miles of credentials, uh, and it's it's good. It, I mean, it's I'm not gonna boast as like it's a great Star Wars film and it was revolutionary or anything because it's kind of a new era of Star Wars. We're still trying to figure out what we're doing with this uh, property in this era, but uh, for fan service and just for general popcorn enjoyability, it's it's right up there. I, I mean, I, if on your ranking scale, I give it a three Maple Leafs. Like it's nice. a solid 
enjoyable film. I think one of the bigger issues is uh, with it is you have Alden Ehrenreich who uh, it did a, he he blew me away from my expectations. I wasn't expecting much. I didn't think he had the look. Everything I saw of him, he was like pretty much like everyone else, being very cynical. Right. And I didn't see him getting this character that's a very brash, standoffish, hardened. But you kind of see why he's hardened. Like they do develop that. You you see why Han Solo becomes the way he he does, uh, and he plays it off very well. He's much younger. He's about I would say this Han Solo is supposed to be about twenty to twenty one in the film. Where the one in, uh, you know, A New Hope is probably about thirty five, forty now. He's he's been around and he's he's kind of got his his chops cut. Mm. He uh, he lives on the uh, like the slave mining planet or the slave uh, manufacturing planet of Corellia. He's trying to get out. He wants to be a pilot. He's his, him and his girlfriend Kira, played by uh, Amelia Clark from Game of Thrones. They they want to eventually get out, and they end up stealing some uh, some fuel that is worth about eight thousand credits that can get them out of the like they, they can sneak past and then like buy their own ship and just get the hell out. It doesn't go as planned. They try to bribe some imperial officers, and of course, like it all goes awry. He gets out, she doesn't, so he joins up with the imperial army to try and be a pilot. Lo and behold, three years later, he's in trench warfare, and he doesn't like the fact that you know they are trying to restore harmony to the Republic, quote-unquote, uh, because they're not. They're just invading, taking over as, as the Empire does. So he hooks up with Woody Harrelson, who's you know dis- uh, portraying himself as a lieutenant, which he obviously isn't, uh, and they're trying to hijack a ship and get off. So he somehow gets hooked up with them, gets hooked up with Chewbacca on the same mission, uh, just the kind of origin story. I'm not going to go into too many spoilers about it. But it is a and it it is an enjoyable ride. You get to see this development of this character, and one of the big things I think why it didn't do very well is is twofold. The first reason is the Last Jedi just came out in December, big big push for the continuation of that story arc, and now you've got six months later another huge Star Wars movie. You would talk about superhero fatigue. These are already stories we pretty much know the outcomes of. It's not like Black Panther where it was something fresh that we didn't know much about, that we were engaged with a certain particular view, and it was actually, um, you know, kind of inspiring to a way, especially in a certain community. This was just, it was a, it was a summer popcorn movie. And it was as enjoyable and as good as it was, you're, you're just starting to throw money on the table, just saying, hey, this, hey, it's working, let's just keep doing it. And it's obviously, this is the one where you finally threw sevens. And you crapped out. So that's the one big issue is they just they put it too early and now you're waiting. The good thing is now they're waiting until next December for the next Star Wars movie as far as I as far as I know. I'm not quite up on my Star Wars. No, I feel like every December there's going to be a new Star Wars movie. Right. Which this should have been it. This should have been pushed late even later in the summer. I think like in August kind of when it's slower would have done better. Maybe a Labor Day, mm-hmm. but they they wanted to get it out there, and they kind of missed the mark by going on the 25th and not the 4th. May the 4th, everyone makes a huge deal about that. Right. Stink but I can also understand why, because Disney, who is our parent company, just have to point that out, mm-hmm. they moved Avengers up a week because they saw a weakness in the box office and took advantage for 
for Infinity War. And that played out brilliantly. Yes. They were hoping that, okay, Infinity War is going to die off, going to get some residual from Deadpool, because even though Fox distributes it, it's still Marvel. Solo will take that over and run that to Incredibles. Even though it's number one, Deadpool may take... Well, actually, no. Deadpool will not take over number one next week. It was was very close. It actually, uh, as of today, for Monday's box office, it was only $300,000 off taking number one for Monday. Wow. Um, That's how close Deadpool is. It's currently sitting at $257 million uh, domestically. Solo's only sitting $152 million domestically as of Monday. Um, It's crazy. But the other reason is, like, like I said before, like you're just exhausting a... Um, you're exhausting a property that people know the outcomes of. As much as they're, as much as we'd like to see them, you just keep going to this well. That's the same thing. You have a huge universe to explore. Let's start exploring it. Let's bring some writers in that may have some ideas and use what you have. Like make him a side character. Like put put Han Solo on in passing. Like this character hooks. Like Rogue One worked very well in that way because it was about the mission, right? And you didn't see a lot of the main characters. So, in defense of the movie itself, it's enjoyable. Go see it because it is a ton of fun. Uh, Donald Glover's fantastic as Lando. Heard he's very good. He starts off, and you just hear that tone and that cadence, and you think it's young Billy D. Williams. He's just he's knocking out of the park. But then, as soon as he kind of gets up, and like you can just see he's like a big bser, and it's fantastic to watch because he's just he's just flirting with everything. Like a droid comes over and and f- refills his drink. And he's just like, oh, thanks, love. <laughs> and it's, it's tremendous to watch because he's he's encompassing Billy D. Williams in in the eighties. Right, he's doing a great job of it, and he plays. And Donald Glover has his own charm, and he's tremendous. And there's a great scene with him and his droid. Uh, I believe the droid was called L three, and she's a very big droid liberator. She's 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 attuned to like we're not the slaves of mankind. We can be free beings as well, which is you know kind of in you know kind of its own social commentary. Uh, and, but it also leads to some very funny moments later on in the film where she's trying to free other droids and cause uprisings. And, uh, Lando even says, I'd wipe her memory, but she just, she's got the best navigation system. She's got the best nav system in the galaxy and I can't be without it. <laughs> and that's the only reason why he doesn't wipe it. But then you come to find out there's some more, there's some more underlying tones within the movie. Like the droid actually thinks Lando's in love with her and she's like, I think he loves me. It's not going to happen. I like him as a friend kind of deal. And even Kira's like, wait, how can how can a droid and a human? And she just goes, it works. <laughs> no other details necessary. They, they, you just, and it pauses. It's got a good little laugh there where she goes, it, it works. <laughs> like, how do you know? <laughs> Check but out Solo. Solo three Maple Leafs. Yeah, I like it. Good review. Uh, I want to circle back. So the minor characters of rest development, Winkler's unbelievable. Tony Wonder, pretty good. Ben Stiller. Uh, Martin Short, when he was playing the strong man, that was great. Uh, Gene Parmesan, also very good, making Lucille hysterical. Martin Mull. Uh, Gene Parmesan. Is that Gene? <laughs> Malik Yova is there, who is obviously black. And he goes, Gene? There's no way you're that good. <laughs> Worst rest development character, and it particularly glaring in this one of the major ones, maybe. There's way too much maybe in this season. She's just not that funny. She's not that interesting. It's kind of one note. Man, there's way too much maybe in this season. And not enough Portia de Rossi. Apparently, she doesn't want to do acting. She's going to a different venture. So she's literally, of the eight episodes, is only in one episode. So get your Portia de Rossi, Lindsay, while you can. All right. Thanks so much to Ben Lines for that uh, rather 
bizarre story, but it was definitely entertaining. Uh, executive producer Dan Stanz, coordinating producer Rick Passmore, and our special guest, Keith Olbermann. Great to have him with us here on Cinephile. We'll be back in a couple weeks. Next time we're going to be reviewing the film uh, The Catcher Who Was a Spy. That was the movie that was at Sundance. I didn't have a chance to see it. Ben Lewin is the director, so we'll hope to talk to him, and we'll have some more reviews as well. Until then, we'll see you at the movies. Don't miss out on the next episode of Cinephile. Subscribe to the Adnan Verk Movie Podcast by clicking the Listen tab in the ESPN app. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.